Welcome to the What Do You Do podcast with Matt Now. I'm your host, Matt, and today I'm flying solo as it is summer and our boy Al is on vacation with his Brady Bunch family. I'm so <laughs> glad today <laughs> to have my good friend guest. She's a registered massage therapist, osteopathic manual practitioner, and the one person I call for advice all the time, my good friend, Mireille Lavictoire. Hello, Mim. Hey, Matt. What I first want to talk to you is about breathing. I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday mm-hmm. and because I, I had been thinking about meditating. I, I brought that up to you before and I was like, yeah. I, I didn't even know how to do it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, yeah. I, what do you do? What do you do? And you, what, how do you even start? Yeah. yeah. And you said to concentrate just on the breathing part, which I have tried. Breathing. Yeah. yeah. I've tried a couple of times. It's very hard to just think of breathing though. A lot of people show up in crisis, like I call it, like at, kind of at the end of their rope. Uh, physically, the tension is so tight that it's now disturbing their sleep, giving them headaches. Some people get teeth grinding and that kind of stuff, jaw lock up from all the tension in the shoulder and the neck. So I have that. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to relax them because they can't relax. So I'm I'm trying to work the muscles, and they're just it's like moving rocks around. So I'm not getting anywhere. And sometimes when I feel like the client is going to be receptive, then I'll take that next step and just go from the sort of physical relationship between the massage therapist and the client. I'm going to remove these knots. I'm going to relax the muscles. Sometimes I'll take that extra step and I'll be like, so like one question would be like, do you consider yourself like a a worrier? Do you think you're a person that worries a lot or is anxious, has anxious thoughts? And oftentimes, yes, is going to be the answer. I've suspected correctly that these people are maybe overthinking a lot. And so that leads me to think that their breath is irregular and tight. And like we're just like breathing in and out, in and out, high up in the chest, constricting the throat, constricting the shoulders. There's a lot of concentration of or like um, congestion that happens in the muscles and the skin and all the tissue around that because we're not exhaling properly. We're not taking in a good breath and then exhaling equally. We often stay up in (gasps) and the way that I describe to my clients, what that looks like in real life is say your job is stressful or your family is, uh, there's some stress. And so we're always sort of like putting out fires, so to speak. So it's like, there's this happening. There's that happening. And then we're always like in this state of, and then where I talk, if they're listening now and pay attention, I can then sort of take it into a physical reality, a place where they can understand what that means to their body. And so I explain what fight or flight is or rest and digest, which most people have heard what fight or flight is. Not as many people have heard what rest and digest means. What's that mean? Fight or flight. So fight or flight is when adrenaline and cortisol stress hormones get released into the brain. Um, These stress hormones, because our thoughts are alerting us. So our, our breathing is alerting the brain that something is wrong. This person is in danger. There's a crisis because the brain can't perceive, cannot tell the difference between perceived fear and real fear. And it's an instinct way back when, back in the day when we would use fight or flight way more often. So you're walking through the jungle and you hear some wrestling in the leaves, but brain cannot differentiate between a perceived fear that there's a saber-toothed tiger just waiting to lunge out at you or a little wind that just burst through the leaves and caused a rustle. 
your brain will react in the exact same way as if it really was. So in today's world, we have these stressors constantly aggravating our um, fight or flight, releasing adrenaline, but there are thoughts. It's our thinking. So instead of having a saber-toothed tiger wrestling right beside us, scaring us, we have our thoughts saying like, oh my God, what if I don't make enough money? And oh my God, the bills are coming and all this stuff. And right. then we worry. And then my mom is really sick and I can't do this. And I've been having such a hard time doing these things. And here I am faced with this challenge again. I don't think I can make it. And so our thoughts now are going. And because the brain can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not as far as fear, it believes it. And the breath is shallow to match that. So the brain really actually believes that there's a crisis at hand. And so then our blood pressure rises. Our, there's all kinds of metabolic reactions that happen to this shallow, quick uptake breath that we have now, now as a habit. Do you think because it's instinctual like that, right? You're saying saber tooth mm-hmm. tire. Do you think we, now we just look for those things in life? Do you know what I mean? It's so instinctive that we're like, well, the bill must be, you know what I mean? Like we're almost looking for something to freak out about. Yes. I think that's a, I think that's a different kind of question. Like I think we've now kind of been conditioned. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what I'm fearful. Um, But I, but that's not what causes this. What causes this is that we don't pay attention to our thinking and how, um, it can really get us going and then our breath becomes shallow. And then the point I really want to make in all of that is that fight or flight is supposed to be something that happens um, as far as our evolution goes. It's something that we jump into. We're on the most part should be in rest and digest, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our, the parts that we can't control so much like our digestion and how much we blink and our heart rate. And these, this is like a calm state that we're in and we should be in that state all the time with bursts of saber tooth tigers, or I'm going to go chase that bison so my family can eat, or I'm going to go do these things and then come back to rest or digest. We're supposed to be in bursts of fight or flight, but mostly in rest and digest. And now in this day, in the society that we've created or somehow we are in, we are mostly in fight or flight and rarely in rest and digest. And so I noticed that in the, in my clients through the years, 20 years experience. So I have noticed over and over and over again that we are mostly stressed and much less relaxed and to bridge that gap through my own experience and readings and other people's research, I've come to understand that breath is the, is the way that we can bring ourselves into rest and digest and then maintain that calmness. These are, this is something that could take a person years if they're just watch, walking in uh, cold to this all of this information. I'm giving it from a person that comes from having a lot of experience. To me, this is very important, but... Uh, simple information. It's, it's, it makes it is simple in it, in its concept, but, but but, yeah, but how, how we can come to take such a simple idea that's so instinctual and it's just facts. These are just, this is science and facts, how the body works and how it reacts to different stressors. But it becomes very conceptual when we try to uh, 
apply it to our own lives and become responsible for our thoughts and our emotions. And it's like people don't think that we have that kind of control or that I could calm myself by breathing. Like, right. So, (laughs) and so, and how do you tell them to start approaching this? Because, you know, when I I asked you last time, sorry, hold on. You were like, you just sit. I was like, how do you meditate? How do you meditate? And and you're like, sit there and just concentrate on the breathing. And I've tried it a couple of times, but you know what I didn't do was concentrate on the exhale. Yes. And that's the most important one. And that's the one that we're lacking in this particular society. Like, so people that I see on a regular basis are people that sort of, there's a commute involved. Uh, The job is probably of a significant stress. And then on the most part, people have like sort of good family lives like on the most part it doesn't seem to be where that's a cause of stress but that's not going to be for everybody but anyways the exhale is the most important part we're always we're stuck in inhalation is a term that i learned uh studying osteopathy and it's it involves the first rib and the rib cage and our collarbones and our like upper cervical spine the upper part of our spinal column and so we're always in intake and we very rarely focus on taking that breath out, that exhale. And so one of the ways to address what you were saying, like how do you do this, is while I have them on the table, I'll ask them to count to three or four, whatever they think they can manage on inhale and three or four on the exhale. And just do that yeah. for as many breaths as they can until their mind wanders. And then it's that's okay. And then you come back to when you've noticed that you're not, counting anymore and you're breathing and you're like oops I was supposed to be counting and now I'm thinking about this oh okay that's okay thoughts are are not are are very difficult to regulate and you can't ever stop thinking so all we're doing is focusing on the breathing the brain is going to do what it does and it most of it has been trained we didn't we haven't realized we don't know that we've been training our brain all these years to be on edge it's a hard concept. These are difficult. So and what do you think causes simple, that? What, what, do you, we don't train ourselves. Why you think do we society? Think we overthink in, in some parts, uh, but each we're, we're members of society, but it's always going to be one individual fighting whatever fight that they're fighting. And so I don't know what childhood that they had. I don't know how they perceived the world. And in this, when you look at everybody cumulatively, you see a society that's really sad and lonely and and we all want to count for something and we don't know how to find that meaning and that purpose. It's difficult. And some people have managed and and other people haven't. And even those that have managed to gain success, say, are still fighting different lonely battles. And so when I face the person, I'm I'm usually, I have to curate it to them specifically, what I'm picking up on, what they say, so the each body client's language. Different? Yeah, every person is going to bring their own unique take to what is a universal idea for most of us is that life is a challenge and you have to fight for it and you have to go for it. And most people have set themselves up in a life where you work for what you have. And it makes sense in a lot of ways, but uh, we find ourselves more and more um, struggling, still in pain. It, it comes at a cost, and that's why they're here, to see me. Our, the, the, the task before me that I've personally taken on, this is my own choice, is to, is to try to undo this conditioning that we've, we've touched on briefly a few times. Um, 
there's a conditioning that happens. Is it individually by each family? Is it um, a bit larger than that by the society and what influences us, what television we watch, what music we've listened to, all these things, the curiosity and where it brings us. And some of it is self-imposed and some of it is imposed on us. So I've chosen to want to uncondition a whole lot of shit that I've been exposed to that I don't think is mine. They don't resonate as my own truth. They're things that I learned either by being sort of forced to just because the way that it works at a school or work or being a girl and what that means, you can paint it all over the place. But I feel that some of the things about the belief constructs that I've found myself thinking sometimes are things about myself that I have thought, but I'm like, man, that's just not me. Like it's just not me. So some of the unconditioning that I've been trying to do are the unlearning. But getting back to like the breathing with your patients, like, so I'm just curious, they, they, they come in and like, like your job is really just to massage them, isn't it? So yes, then is. this off, this extra offering of, no, this is what you need to do. Like, do you give them homework? Like, you need to do this at home? They ask, like, part of, like, part of the requirement of a massage therapist is to sort of assess what, so the person will come in and they'll present with a problem. Mm-hmm. So you intake that, you listen, you ask questions. They say, my right shoulder, and then it's my right shoulder neck hurts. And then they'll either come forward and say, and it gives me headaches and I kind of feel like it comes from there. Or they'll say like, I fell and I fell on my elbow and it reefed up. Like there'll be a reason, but a lot of the times there's no reason that it hurts. It just does. And oftentimes it's because they sit at a desk or they have a large commute. There's a lot of stress in their lives or literally have the burden of the world on their shoulders. And so it's all culminating in their neck and shoulders. And so you listen to it, you take it in, and then I go to massage it. Nine out of 10, the problem isn't the right shoulder. If there's no cause for injury, if it's just an occurrence that's happened over time because of chronic habitual stuff like sitting in a desk for eight hours a day, um, then the chances are that it's the right shoulder is slim. It's going to come from uh, like some kind of hip instability because they sit and they cross their legs, and so it pulls on one side more than the other. The low back is being implicated. We have low core strength because we're collapsed through the middle, so our abdomen isn't engaged, and so it doesn't give us proper posture and support. So the head starts to sink, and it crushes the neck. And the So the, I'll often offer that, like, I will gladly massage your right shoulder for the entire time. Chances are that it's just the right shoulder is slim. Can I, will I include the left hip or the right hip because it's going to be one or the other that's contributing to this? And if we can increase some of the circulation there, increase some of the range of motion and decrease some of the tension and the tonicity in your muscle, this will help because it'll take some of that pressure off the low back, which will go up your spine and sort of help take some of the pressure off your shoulders. And then people often are very receptive. Yes, yes, yes. They understand. They some. In this day and age, much more than when I started, people are getting more and more sort of in tune in their bodies and they understand what I'm saying to them. And the more receptive the person is, the more I will sometimes choose to offer as much as I sense. Now, that's not every massage therapist. That's just me. That's me being me. It is beyond sometimes 
but it falls will it will always for legal reasons fall within the scope of practice of a registered massage therapist. There's certain things I need to adhere to legally, and that's what I pay that money for to be registered, and oh. I agree to that. But breathing techniques fall within the scope of practice. I can't just do breathing techniques. That's not massage therapy. Right. That's not within the scope of t- techniques, the scope of practice, pardon me. But it can be added. I'm also allowed to do guided or uh, visual, me- uh, excuse me, guided meditation, visual meditation. So I'm allowed to give visuals, like putting out the fires so that they understand that there's, it's a little bit uh, of an emergency. We have to deal with this. It's right there happening right now. I have to act. Right. Fight or flight, right. So, how, where does the osteopath so, part come into it? What do you mean? As in, I have no idea what an osteopath is. <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> that's a form of manual therapy that focuses on the joints, the bigger so ones, like your elbow, like, your you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the big ones, like the hips and the elbows and the knees and the ankles. But also the finer ones, like the very um, limited range of motion, but still able to have some kind of range of motion along the spine. So it'll have a lot of twists and a lot of, and like the little bit of range of motion that you can get in the joint between the ribs where they connect to the spine and where they connect to the sternum in the front. And all of these little joints that we have that we don't often pay attention to that can, that can um, create quite a lot of tension if they are restricted. So that's why you'll, with osteopathy, there's, it's more of a manual therapy and you're going to move around a lot. It doesn't have that same element of relaxation that people associate with massage therapy. But um, if it's similar to chiropractic in the sense, if people are familiar with chiropractic, chiropractic <laughs> um, therapy. Chiropractor. Uh, chiropractor. Chiropractory. will have the... <laughs> actual kind of cracking with chiropractic chiropractic care whereas with osteopathy um you take it all the way the range of motion you take the joint all the way to the part where you would then give it that what they call a high velocity low impact um low grade pardon me high velocity low grade um adjustment so we'll take it all the way to the end what they call the end feel the end range of the joint and then snap and where osteopathy will, um, through sort of stretching and, and um, a little bit of uh, um, muscle play, they will bring it to the end feel or the end range and then stretch it instead of snap it. So they'll um, create small circles within the joint's natural range of motion. Or if it's not a, a, a circular type joint, it'll be like a push and a pull or like a like a planing like for people that do that understand carpentry like planing it's a planing yeah, joint that moves I'm more side to side that, yeah. yes so some joints move more in a planing motion some rotate some are pivots they're called so there's all types of different ranges of motion for joints and so they focus more on those types of things and taking the joint regardless of how it moves and take it to the end and then um, really focus on in that end range and so it's fundamentally a form of manual therapy but there's a lot more they, they involve uh, cranial sacral they involve visceral which means the organ so you can with quotes that you can't see me do now or now um, visceral adjustments quote of the organs which really just means finding them you often can't touch things like the 
kidneys or some things are more palpable on the surface, like our intestines and stuff like that. But ultimately, you're not touching them. You're in the direction of them, going through the fascia and the muscle walls and all that kind of stuff. And you just press on it. And then again, you're just sort of, with quotes, adjusting it. But really what you're doing is just availing range of motion that might not be available if we don't breathe properly, if our digestion is impacted, if we have muscle um, or scar tissueing. Some women have had cesareans. Some people have had digestive issues where they've had to have surgery. This, All that scar tissue interrupts all the organs. And so with osteopathy or other types of um, manual yeah. therapy, you can help create motility, mobility within the organs that Otherwise, just so you you congested. trying to get rid of all their pain doesn't that give you pain? Like that, um, it sounds like a very yeah. manual job. You know what I mean? Like you 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 are pushing yourself. Like what do you do? What do you do to relax? Right. So you I who massages you? I have I um, don't have a regular massage therapist, and I and I should probably go more often. I don't always go to the same therapist. I like to try out new things until I find the person that I like. I recently went to an energy healing session, which I'd never really done. I'd understood what Reiki was. I'd studied a little bit of it, but uh, I've never really done what this thing is called. I don't even really know what it is. I researched it a little bit on Google afterwards, but I went in cold, cold so to speak, right. so that I um, didn't know anything about it. And I found it really neat and quite interesting. And it helps. It it's helped me decompress the most, even though technically nothing's really happening. But it makes me focus on my my breath. The worst thing that's happening is that I'm breathing consistently, rhythmically, soothingly, relaxingly for an hour. And so, and so people it... have to pay for that, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back to the thing about the brain and why it would work or why I think it works or what my understanding of it is, is that they've observed and with their tests what different parts of the brain when they do what they're doing. So there's the delta mode so when we're in sleep or deep meditation or deep thinking. And then there's the alpha when we're in uh, high concentration and the mind is active, uh, calm, but in a higher state, right? Like we're very sharp and alert in, the, in a, when we're in our alpha state. So they measured all the frequency when the brain is in delta, sort of sleep deep meditation mode, when it's in alpha, when it's in beta, and when it does all the different um, gamma or whatever, all the different, there's five of them that the brain yeah. emits. There's much more. There, I, I, I there don't know if there are more frequencies. Yeah, there's much more information than I have. All I'm going to speak to right now is the brain operates in different frequencies. And if a person has experienced any kind of trauma or they've lived a, a, a particular way and their thinking is of a particular way, and I explain expressed earlier that some of it isn't mine and I've been trying to restore and having a person that suffered some trauma in their life, there's PTSD and there's like reciprocate, there's um, reciprocity, there's consequences. So I don't want those consequences. I would like to heal what's happened to my brain or how it was forced to cope in those situations. And it was very stressful. Like we were speaking to when we first started speaking about adrenaline and cortisol. If you're constantly living in duress and stress, your brain has conditioned itself to always be on edge, just ready to fucking snap at any turn. So when you live trauma and live a high stress environment for a long period of time, it damages the brain. So 
Do you say society is just running in a wrong direction right now? I don't, I'm not speaking to society. Remember I said, I'm going to speak to what I'm speaking to my own personal experience. Yeah. So but I mean, come I've on, you noticed, have an opinion on it. Yeah. But let me just finish this thought. So okay. here, so for me, where I, 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 then I researched. So when I read all that information and in different parts of the brain of frequency and, 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 and then I researched what part of the brain um, would be, would suffer the consequences of this kind of trauma or what part of the brain is in charge of this sort of, uh, how does it orient thought? How does it deal with emotions? And how, what parts of the brain deal with conflict? And I got as much information as I um, was able to understand about a person that would have PTSD and how, what could they, what tones or frequencies or hertz frequencies or vibrations could they start with to help themselves? And then that leads to more information and different stuff and Google, Google. And then <laughs> I found the ones that served, that would help me a person seeking um, aid in a PTSD damaged brain. How could a trauma survivor uh, help themselves in this day? Like after. So you're saying fact? it's a personal um, journey. Yeah, it's just all been for me. Yeah, you, uh, yeah but I, if you were if you were to get, say somebody asked you like how how did you you know come out of this? How did you you do it? You say it's a personal journey. Try these things out, but. <laughs> But here are the things that help me. Maybe they'll help you. Yeah. But I can't stand firm and say this is for sure going to help you. A, I don't know where your belief systems lie. Just like you're, you're like I'm there, but I'm not all the way there. So if a person isn't all the way there, what? How is it going to help me to say to them, you must do this? They're going to not accept that. You know what I mean? Like a person may become more open-minded and receptive if I talk about my experience. And if my experience is in any way similar or relatable to theirs, and because I've been doing this for a long, long time, I understand how to talk to people. I know how to reach them. So I will express things that I think I know they've experienced. I'm not going to lie about my life, but I'm going to tell them that the parts of my life that I think they're going to relate to. And if I want them and they seem ready to let their guard down, then I'll express something relatable about me what I've gone through, what I did to overcome it. And that's that. Has, 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 it, has that it really worked? Have them. you seen like a, Oh my God, I changed this person. Yes. The most visible sign, the most apparent, the quickest impact is when people walk in, they're stressed, they're tired, they're sad, they're mad. They're in some kind of way because of the state that their body is in, because of the state that their emotional body is in. And they'll come in presenting with whatever. Often it has way more to do. And some people are very um, uh, available with their information. I'll tell you my life. And they're told, sometimes it's way TMI. But people, some people are very willing to tell you everything that's going on in their lives. And other people are less willing, more reluctant. And they'll come in and so they'll be telling me their story. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking at their body language. I'm listening to their words. I'm seeing where it plays out in their body. And I'll look at their eyes. And some of them are willing to look, make eye contact. Some people are less willing. Some people are more willing. And I look at their eyes and I see what their eyes say. And sometimes I can really see the sadness. Sometimes I can really see how they're just so tired, like just so at the end of the rope. And then sometimes it's just the massage and, and just, just that. Sometimes it's a little bit of talking. Sometimes it's a lot of talking. Sometimes it's encouraging on my part. One way, shape or another. When they get up again and they come out of the room and I see them, the spark that has returned to their eye is one of the most rewarding feelings that I have encountered 
on this thing. It's my job. It's what I do as a career. So yeah, it pays the bills. So you find it That's fulfilling. part of it. But I find it tremendously fulfilling and very rewarding to have helped somebody just in that little bit of time restore that spark. So, Mireille Lavictoire, if uh, anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, where, do, where do we find you? Well, Matt, I have a Facebook page called Mireille RMT, capital M-I-R-E-I-L-L-E-R-M-T, all together. The M is capital, everything else lowercase. And I also work out of Water's Edge Salon and Spa in Burlington on Old Lakeshore Road. That's awesome, and thanks so much for being our guest today, Mim. You're welcome, Matt. It was a lot of fun. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Jam Production Company, its affiliates, and or its partners.